0: Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the topic of why aren't they listening? Joining me today are Jerry Ensler, Paul Gaffney II, and Richard Harris. Jerry Ensler is the Executive Director of the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium in Dubuque, Iowa. He's a leader in the aquarium industry, in the informal science education domain, and in Coastal America's Coastal Ecosystem Learning Network. Paul Gaffney has had a distinguished career in the Navy, from which he retired as Vice Admiral with more than 35 years of service, and in higher education as the President of Monmouth University. He served on the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, is a member of the Joint Ocean Commission, and a fellow of Monmouth University's Urban Coast Institute. Richard Harris is an award-winning journalist who reports on science and the environment for NPR's magazines. He also chaired a panel at the recent Ocean Sciences 2014 meeting on this same topic, Why Aren't They Listening? I'm in Long Beach, California. Paul Gaffney is in Charleston, South Carolina, Jerry Ensler is in Dubuque, Iowa, and Richard Harris is in Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thank you all for joining me today. Why aren't they listening? First, we need to define who we mean by they. In the next half hour, we're going to look at two they's. First, our elected and appointed officials in Washington, D.C., and second, the general public. And what is it they aren't listening to? For this program, it's the ocean issues that those of us in the ocean com- community are so concerned about. Climate change, ocean acidification, ocean warming, habitat destruction, overfishing, overenrichment with nutrients, to name just a few. Richard, I'd like to start with you. Tell us some of the major messages that you heard from the panel at the recent Ocean Sciences meeting. And let's focus first on our elected and appointed officials.
1: All right, Jerry. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I think what we heard from the panel was a, was a spectrum of ideas. Uh, and the, first of all, those that apply to everybody were, uh, have a simple message, uh, say it clearly and repeat it often, know your audience, and that applies particularly for politicians as well as everybody else, and tell a story. People always like to hear stories, and that's uh, uh, that's a good way to connect with people. Now. Politicians are also a special case, because you can make the most factual persuasive argument you want, but that's, they're not necessarily moved by facts. What they want to know is, how is it going to help me get elected? How is this going to fit into the political battles that I'm fighting? And so, to, to, if you need to talk to a politician about these things, uh, you need to think about you know what, what the politician cares about and what, is, what they're interested in. And uh, I must say that environmental issues are often fairly low on politicians' agendas, although there are some success stories, like uh, like controlling over fishing in this country. has been a, it's a, sex, a success story uh, guided by politicians as well as uh, policymakers and
0: bureaucrats and so on. So, so those, I think just to, to lay the groundwork a little bit, I would I would put it right there. Th- thank you, Richard. Paul, you've been active on the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, and you're now on the Joint Ocean Commission and I know you are familiar with the Pew Oceans Commission report, which came out about the same time, and with the Stratton Commission report, uh, Our Nation and the Sea, which goes back to 1969. The findings and recommendations over that period of more than 40 years haven't changed very much. So why aren't they listening, Paul?
2: Well, uh, Jerry, I think uh, maybe I'll surprise you with my answer in that Uh, Maybe some of them have been listening uh, for the last several generations. If you look at the billions of dollars that have been invested by the government, uh, various parts of the government uh, over the years, the ships, the satellites, these are the the instrumentation infrastructure and the amount of research support that has gone to our universities uh, throughout the country and our government laboratories. You tallied all that up. It is billions of dollars. Now, admittedly, it's not enough, but we have to give some credit because they have made some good decisions along the way. We just want them to continue to make those. One of the issues I think, uh, now if I shift to the other side of that and not give credit, one of the, I think, issues that that may uh, make this difficult is that there are so many of us and so many of them that are talking about these things. We all have our own special little niche program this year that we're going to propose to our to the agency uh, of interest to us or the Congress. But on the other side, there are some 55 or so committees and subcommittees of the Congress that have something to do with ocean policy or ocean funding. And that makes it a very, very complicated uh, mass. I don't see us uh, coming together as a community consistently asking for uh, so, some core funding. I, I, I do see us asking, and I've done this myself, of course, ask for special projects that I'm interested in for this year or next year. But core things like, uh, are we doing do we have enough funding to go out and understand the basic processes in the ocean, investing in research? Are we then measuring those processes once we think we know what they are? And are we educating the public? Three constant things that I think are not partisan issues that would be good to continue to push for year after year after year. We get a little confused, and I think the people that are trying to listen to us if they are trying may get a little confused too by all the different little projects that we put forward.
0: All right, Paul, I'm gonna come back to and ask you a couple of questions, but first let's hear what uh, Jerry Ensler has to say from the heartland of the country. Uh, Jerry, what would you like to add to what Richard and Paul have said?
3: Well, I think it's, um, you know, we're 1,700 miles from the Gulf of Mexico here in Dubuque, Iowa. Yeah, what we do in Dubuque and in the other 31 states that that, pour their waters into the Gulf, it has an enormous impact on ocean health. Um, I, I really strongly feel that the, the watershed ecosystem approach is essential because almost all of our waters, except for maybe like the Great Basin, they do flow to the ocean. And so there's this very significant um, uh, impact that we have. And the more we can get the entire nation focused on ocean issues and not just the coastal states, for example, the more successful we will be. Um, and and we, when we look at uh, we look at the health of the Gulf of Mexico and in the Mississippi River and all those waters, well we look at, at NOAA, of course, which is part of Commerce Department, and we look to uh, support from EPA. We look to support from uh, uh, the, the farm bill, for example, uh, which is a totally separate group. You have diverse groups and they are, maybe they aren't listening as much as they should be or could be because they only have a piece of the pie. Uh, NOAA has a big piece, obviously, but some of the, you know, some of the, uh, EPA and the Farm Bill, I mean, that's kind of out of their hands in terms of, out of Commerce's hands and it goes to another committee, uh, the, uh, the Farm Bill Committee. Um, you know, and so all the, the nutrients, the excess nutrients that are poured into the Gulf those the answer for reducing those does come through the farm bill, which is a very complicated bill it's also our our welfare bill um, so it supports farmers but it supports all the people who need food uh, and food stamps or welfare support so it's a, it's a very complicated structure uh, that we are trying to approach to to have a healthy ocean
0: all, right, all, all very good points. I want to come back to the the recent ocean sciences meeting and um before, before we talk about the how scientists are or are not trained to be good communicators, it, it seems to me that the big challenge is that the federal elected and appointed officials pay attention to what's on the national agenda and our issues are not really on the national agenda. Jobs, unemployment, the economy, uh, terrorism, etc. You've had some thoughts because you've expressed them to me. How do we get some of our issues on the national agenda so they will get more attention than they do now?
2: Well, um, I think you you know that uh, I may not exactly agree um, that all these uh, members of Congress and the administration are only worried about national issues. They certainly are. Uh, but they also have to get elected every two years or every six years or get appointed uh, by, uh, by, the, by the president. And I think that there is uh, quite a bit of influence that can come from the local community. And so if you were to ask me at the end, what would I leave behind? I would say, go after those coastal states uh, first. Uh, I, I do agree with Jerry's very uh, uh, good comments about the farm bill. And about what's going on in the Midwest and what it's done to the Gulf and these were very important issues during the Ocean Commission. But I think there are so many uh members of Congress and, and Senate that can be reached and you can make one can make this a this national problem or this national challenge of the ocean a local issue at the voter level. And I think people uh, should uh, should be doing that.
0: And I, th- I would agree with you. That's one of the places where I think we have to do much more. And as Tip O'Neill reminded us, all politics is local. And certainly we can, can relate some of these coastal issues to, to the economy, whether it's uh, uh, tourism and, and so on. Now, one of the, the, the arguments that was made in Honolulu by one, two of our panelists was that scientists aren't trained to communicate with non-specialists, whether it's policymakers or the general public and that we need programs to make scientists better communicators. I think that, that does have, have some merit, and um, Richard, you interview an awful lot of scientists. What, what's your take on those of us if trained as scientists, whether we're good at communicating or not, and what would you recommend?
1: Well, certainly, there's a very broad spectrum of people with with communication skills uh, in science, and I often have to coax people to use plain language uh, when they're when I'm interviewing them for a broadcast for National Public Radio. Obviously, we reach out to a very broad segment of of America. So, I think absolutely it's worth spending some time and effort thinking about what you want your message to be and how you want to how you want to present it. I mean, you what is the old expression? You only have one chance to make a good first impression. And uh, and I think that that is often the case when a scientist encounters a policymaker. You have, there you are, you have your, your elevator moment, if you will, and you have to make sure that your ideas are condensed down well enough that you can express them you know, before the elevator gets to the next floor. So I think those are those are important skills. I also think that scientists maybe beat themselves up a little bit too much about communicating with uh, with members of Congress. I think the most important thing for scientists to do is do the science and make sure that, that it's out there and available. Because there are other segments that are good at communicating, whether it's advocacy groups or people like yourself, there are talented people who can, who can be the public face. And so not every scientist needs to uh, feel that it's their responsibility. But, but if they have the gift, they
0: should certainly uh, employ it if they can and I would agree. I think the first responsibility is to do their, their science. This came up in Honolulu. Uh, you want to get promoted and tenured uh, so that uh, you're, you're going to be able to play these role, larger roles maybe with society. I want to underscore that listening is something one chooses to do. It's an action. And we listen to what interests us, is important to us, and is relevant to us. And I think we sometimes forget that when we deal with elected and appointed officials. And I think Paul, your comments were right on. We have to connect our issues to their issues. And while it may be easier in the coastal states, we've got to get to people in the central part of the country. And uh, Jerry, you're you're in Iowa. You're you're maybe one of the easier targets in the central part of the country because you're on the Mississippi. And what you guys do. Uh, in the two thirds of the the 60% of the country that gets drained by the Mississippi gets manifested down in in the Gulf. But say just a word about what you do to promote active listening to these bigger issues that affect the ocean.
3: Well, we we, we try and stay very in the forefront about our connectivity. Um, We have a new exhibit called Rivers to the Sea and we have a traveling version of that, which is traveling around the country. So it's been in uh, Baton Rouge and Memphis and New Orleans, just up in Charleston last week, West Virginia, um, all about river connectivity to the ocean as well as commerce and culture and the heritage. Um, we find that a lot of people uh, come from, with a more broader view. In, our, in other words, our general public learning, informal learning uh, visitors um, they value the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico um, they value clean water but they also value economic benefits and they value heritage um, as as equally important um, and so there's a matter of uh, kind of national pride if you will um, you know, we have rivers and, and oceans that we sometimes can't can't drink from um, uh, maybe we don't want to uh, swim in them and so these are these are issues of uh, either great pride in our nation, or a little bit of embarrassment that we've let these resources go so uh, to, to such degradation.
0: So in terms of then elected and appointed officials, I think some of the, the takeaways I have from what all of you have said is that, uh, yes, we need to, to learn how to be better communicators. We have to put the our own science into a larger context of what it means to society. We have to relate these to the issues that are, are on the national agenda. And we should use partnerships of those who are trained to be communicators. We need to do much more, I think, with social scientists and communicators than many of us have done in the past. So before we leave get the, the part of, uh, of this that deals with elected and appointed officials, would each of you add a, another point uh, to what do you think we need to do to get them more involved in listening? Paul, we'll start with you. Okay. Well, uh, maybe this uh,
2: relates back to uh, starting out with the contact sport of of, uh, engaging your local uh, elected official. Uh, I think one must try to stay away from these partisan polarizing buzzwords uh, when when, when, when one can. And I think that's easier to do when you're speaking to your senator or your congressman in your state or your district, you can you, you can avoid words that turn certain uh, branches of government or, or parties off. I, I, w- I would uh, do that. And I, I'm not so sure that uh, all of all of those of us that are in the ocean business aren't good communicators. We have many great communicators around that have had television shows. There are the Ballards or Cuscos of the world. There are, and there are all that you sainted people that run and work in Aquaria from Iowa out to both coasts that do the very first thing, and that is entertain
0: somebody and perhaps get a hook into their long-term interest in the ocean. Richard, what would you add to what Paul has said?
1: Well, I think uh, you should not underestimate the value of persistence. When you watch what happens in Washington and how it happens, often it's people working on the same issue for year after year after year after year before it finally is ripe and ready for action. So I would say, you
0: know, persistence. Keep keep trying. Don't give up. All right, that's good good advice, uh, Jerry Ensler, What would you add?
3: I guess I would add that uh, as agencies uh, or NGOs, if we go to uh, Congress and want to influence our our legislator. We often are asking for something uniquely for ourselves or for our particular sphere. Uh, so we're acting locally. Uh, but we do need to think globally, and part of the conversation is, is having become aware of the global situation, the health of our oceans.
0: All right. Let, let's turn now to the general public. And, yes, I do know that there are lots of publics, and uh, one of the first things we're told that if you want to communicate effectively, you have to know your audience. But I'm referring here now to the broad cross-section of the general public, the kind of people that visit the, the nation's aquariums, for example. And at the Ocean Sciences Conference, Ed Maybeck of George Mason University and an expert on communication gave some advice. And I think Richard referred to some of this, but I want to repeat it. Have simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted resources. Embrace the science of communication. Form partnerships of natural scientists, social scientists, and communication practitioners in developing the messages and the delivery strategies. And know and be clear about what we want them to do with the information that we give them. Jerry, you and your institution specialize in communicating with the general public. Do you think the general public is listening to the messages that you're delivering?
3: I, I think they are. The ones, that, the ones who at least are visiting or, or hearing our message, they are they are listening. I mean, our studies show that 52% of our visitors have changed their attitude towards the river and its impact on the Gulf of Mexico uh, by visiting our site. Um, now, the, the, the next survey, which is very telling, is six months from now, have they still retained that? Or has it been reinforced by visits to other Coast America ecosystem learning centers or other aquariums? Um, but but in terms of the broad general public, um, we were asked by the McKnight Foundation to coordinate a group of 38 uh, stewardship organizations on the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico. And so we developed an organization called Mississippi River Network. And so we have 10,000 members of the general public who have signed up to become a citizen of the river. Uh, we developed goals to restore the Mississippi River and the Gulf, the land, the water, and the people. And so that uh, restoring people and their attitudes and ability to act positively is part of it. But also as part of that, we interviewed a 1,000 residents, voters in the 10 states along the main stem, and we did six um, focus groups. And we found that the general public um, is ambivalent about pollution. They don't know who actually is responsible for uh, the health of the water in their region or national. They have some ideas, but they don't really know, but they, they know it's not their issue. Um, they, they can be persuaded to think, yeah, I and mean, if describing a, a program, they are, they are saying that they would overwhelmingly support, you know, significant uh, investment, like $3 billion. They would support that kind of investment for a clean Mississippi River watershed and Gulf of Mexico. Um, but then when asked how that rates compared to the other issues, um, whether it's global warming or, or um, terrorism or security, uh, again, it falls down to a seven, eight, nine level. So we have a lot of work to do to try and make this a an issue in the forefront for the general public.
0: Thank you, Jerry. Richard, you also communicate with the public, although it may be a narrower cross section than goes to aquariums, but certainly it's an important public. What would you add to what Jerry has said? Is the public listening to our issues?
1: They are, they are listening, but they're hearing different stories from different sources. Uh, uh, Ed Maybach, whom you mentioned, was at the meeting in Honolulu as part of a uh, research project with Tony Leiserwitz at Yale, and they've been looking at how Americans perceive uh, issues of climate change. And it's a, there's a real split in this country. There are people who are very firmly on one side of the issue or the other, and uh, and the, the science is sort of secondary. It's They're looking to the people that they know and trust, and they're listening to... What they what they're hearing so one of the real problems is that there's not a monolithic public and there's not even a monolithic media different media are certainly sending out different messages about ocean issues some being totally dismissive which appeals to people who want to believe that it's not a problem and and more mainstream uh, media like NPR and, and we obviously talk about these issues and and we and we try to get people aware of them and, and concerned about them so it's a uh, it's a,
0: it's a little bit messier uh, of, of a situation than, than just talking about how do we talk to the public. Yes, no, I, I would certainly agree. Paul, you, you went at Monmouth University and, and now as a fellow of the Urban Coast Institute there. You deal also with a segment of the public, and uh, you had Superstorm Sandy come through that region. What would you add to what's already been said in terms of communicating with the public, whether it's the broad public or a particular segment of it?
2: Well, superstorm Sandy goes over the top of your head, or pick any other storm. You're at least for some period of time. You're going to be a believer, and I think the people in Monmouth and Oce- people in Monmouth and Ocean County in New Jersey, and the folks in New York City, of course, are, are believers and have been paying attention to this. But a tool that the Urban Coast Institute has been using with, uh, I think, a very well-respected polling uh, section of our of our university is to do polls on these issues, at least the regional and local uh, ocean issues uh, with our with the people uh, surrounding. And I think when you get a call, you actually think about these issues for a while, and then when the local newspaper or a regional newspaper publishes the results of these polls, it gets uh, more and more uh, people's attention. I think that's a, a nice new technique uh, to add to the array of techniques that, that we have. I personally, because, look, I was at your, I was honored to be at your aquarium just a few weeks ago, and I saw young people come in and immediately get entertained. And I, you would see three- and four-year-olds draw their whole family in and, and get them involved in the issue. And I think you have such a great uh, uh, tool there to use uh, to pre- present not just uh, pretty fish, but to lead them on to contemporary issues of the arctic or drilling off our shores or where is it uh this is a grisly way to think about it but where are the the remains of uh, malaysian air 370
0: and and sometimes i think we forget that having fun is one of the times when we learn the most Uh, and i think aquarium science centers natural history museums all are in this domain of informal science and i think that our greatest value probably is not imparting detailed information about these issues, but it's getting people interested and excited and aware so then when they leave after two hours or three hours, they go away and and learn something. I want to ask the question, how important is communicating with the general public to getting our elected and appointed officials to listen to our issues and concerns? Any one of you can start. Uh, how important is public communication to affecting decisions in Washington? Who wants to start?
2: Well, I'll, I'll be happy to start. I, I, I think I started with this uh, 30 minutes ago. I, th- I think that the, if the local electorate does not address these issues, the members of Congress will be left to their party's position. And they need to engage, the public needs to engage their elected officials so that they walk in with their own agenda and they're not being led around by some, uh, some party platform. All
0: right, R- Richard, pick up on that. How important uh, do, you, do you think educating the public? Clearly, you've devoted your life to doing this. Is this sure. a good way to influence policy in Washington, D.C.?
1: It's certainly important. It's not the only thing, but it is important. I think if you if you you talked at the beginning about wanting to push things up the public agenda, that only happens with a public that cares about an issue. But A lot of things also do happen in Congress that do not involve these big, high-profile issues. Congress gets a lot of stuff done that sort of under it. Sort of uh, that's that we don't that's not highly vis- visible. It's things like funding science, which was men- mentioned earlier, and, and doing things like that. That's not the result of a huge public outcry saying we want more so- m- money for the National Science Foundation, but a certain amount of, of uh, just agreeing that that's a national priority and it doesn't require public push. But if you want to take an issue like ocean acidification, for example, and make it a critical issue, it's, it's not going to rise to the, to the political realm until and unless there's a, there's a public that deeply cares about it.
0: Thank you Jerry, what would you add to that?
3: I would agree 100% I think without the public, the, uh, our legislators will uh, it would be hard for them to even have it on the horizon. and their advisors may be telling them, well you need to go with this, this public or this you know, prevalent view. Uh, and you know many of our, our legislators are very gracious in both their conscience, um, but it's, you know, it's hard for them to uh, continually be aware of these issues if they don't hear from their constituents. Uh, and not just from NGOs or those who are advocating for something. So we think it's absolutely essential that that the public learn from our our nonpartisan our scientifically based aquariums and enjoy, become enthused, learn what they can learn, and then uh, working with others, they can be encouraged to approach um, their their legislator to really make a difference.
0: So Jerry Ensler and I are both. Uh with aquariums. And uh, this program is part of Coastal America's outreach program through what's called the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network. It consists of 25 institutions, mostly all aquariums. 23 are in the U.S., one in Canada, and one in Mexico. So what I would like to do is, since we collectively we get to at least 25 million people a year, and we've done some of these in this discussion up to here, but let's try to outline an action agenda that all of you believe that we should focus on. And you can draw upon Maybeck's comments, things you've already said. We're going to try to put these on a, on a list and put them up on the screen before we end this, this program, and then Jerry and I will take this message back to the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network. So if you had one piece of advice as to what the aquarium should focus on going forward, what would it be? And we'll go around robin, and when we run out of ideas, we'll stop. Paul, I'm going to start start with you. What one thing would you urge us in the aquarium world to focus on more than we have, perhaps?
2: Well, not more than you have, but you must continue to entertain the people that come through the gate. Now, that's the hook that will that gives you the best chance of making a life friend of these issues. I hope that when you entertain them, that will you will. Uh, tie in a little bit more contemporary issues uh, that they may be reading about in the newspaper
0: or hear about uh, in television that you can help them make that connection. Good point, because basically aquariums, science centers, and natural history museums, we're very good at more at the timeless issues we're less good at the timely issues. We, we need to figure out how we can combine our great exhibits with what happened uh, in the Gulf, the recent oil spill there, or if, when we have a Superstorm Sandy. How can we include or combine the timely with the timeless? Jerry, what do you think uh, we should focus on more than we have?
3: Uh, you know, following up on your idea of uh, timeliness, um, in, the, in the Gulf spill in 2010, we were just opening a 40,000 gallon tank uh w- which would hold the uh the uh fish from the um from the gulf and frankly they weren't ready yet we were opening our building it was a major expansion and um we weren't the, those animals were not out of quarantine yet and we said well we can just have them look at an empty tank we could just close off the area and we said no let's recreate the facsimile of an oil spill and we put oil drops on um, um like o- over the acrylic window so when people would come and look they they didn't see the fish swimming but they saw the foils and we said you know think clearly about about what's happening here and, and for them it was a it was a visual representation they saw pictures of you know of birds that had been felled by by the oil um and it, and it engaged in a conversation uh, people asked us well what are you doing uh why are you doing this about the gulf and we said well Here's what the Mississippi River has to do with the Gulf. 200 million gallons of water every second. And that is is expanded five times over in flood times. Um, And the water that flows through the Gulf of Mexico then goes up the Atlantic coast and then goes across the Gulf Stream. It goes across the Atlantic to Europe. Uh, So we are so well connected and sometimes we don't realize it. So that was an example of, of how we were trying to be immediate and responsive to what was happening in current events.
0: And I think that was a great example because typically when we do a new changing exhibit, it'll take us one to two years and a half a million dollars to a million dollars. And um, we, we should put greater emphasis on some of the science in real time, uh, just-in-time science where we bring these issues to the public. Richard, what, do you, what would you add to this list other than having us recommend to all of our visitors that they listen to your program?
1: Well, I think that for aquariums, obviously, what you want to do is engage people. You want to give them a sense of wonder about the ocean so they'll appreciate them. I think you have to be careful about introducing environmental issues. It's important to do, but you don't want to have the aquarium. You don't want people to say, oh, I don't want to go to the aquarium because there'll be environmental issues, and that's a bummer. I don't. I don't I want to go to have fun, not to be depressed. So, if, so when you do deal with these important issues... Make sure that your visitors leave with a sense of hope, because there are solutions to all of these problems, but uh, maybe very difficult solutions, but they are out there. And, and you want people energized to think about those and not just be depressed about the state of the oceans today.
0: I think that's a very good point. There are solutions out there, but we do have to make the public aware about some of these big issues, because as we've already said, they're going to influence Washington and um, we we've uh, participate with a number of other aquariums in surveys several times a year and it's interesting they ask the same set of questions of all the participating aquariums and as we've added more environmental science the entertainment value of a visit to our aquarium has gone up. It bothers me a lot that the perceived educational value has gone down but I think it's because they're having fun, they're engaged, they're enjoying things, and they don't realize that they're, they're learning. And our philosophy here is uh, we, the, the fish are bait to get people to come in, and when they're here, we snooker them into learning something. Now, let's, do any of the three of you want to add to this list of ideas that, that Jerry and I are going to take back to our colleagues and see if we can get them to focus on over the next 12 months? all, would you like to add anything? Well, I was
2: unfortunately in Margaret Davidson's office at Coastal uh, Scientist Center in, in Charleston. And we were talking today about other constituencies that may be interested in our issues and influential. And she spoke for uh, 20 or 30 minutes about the interest of the growing interest of the insurance industry and the general investment industry. And they certainly have people uh, to whom they speak uh, that can make uh, decisions on our behalf
0: okay that that and that's very good Ben Margaret's been on this program a couple of times where we've talked about increasing uh, coastal resilience in the face of rising sea level and so on um, Jerry would you like to add anything to our list
3: well I'd, I'd like to uh, I'd like to talk about the power of collaboration um, we, we see our as a coastal ecosystem learning center we see ourselves as a hub in the Midwest, and so we have reached out to 70 museums and interpretive centers along the Mississippi River, along those 10 states. And so we have a, an organization where we share best practices and share messages, and we've even developed themes for interpretation. Um, uh, Jerry Schubel and I, uh, my older brother Jerry Schubel, we are um, both uh, both part of this Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center network. And so we have the opportunity and the privilege of having a, an Ocean Today kiosk in each of our aquariums and uh, it's the same kiosk that's at the national museum of uh, uh, natural history and at the ocean hall the saint ocean hall and so when you think about uh, the fact that it, to me there's something magic about someone saying well i'm learning this now but also at 17 other locations around the country including the smithsonian and the Shedd aquarium the aquarium of the pacific and the national aquarium people are learning some of these same messages i feel like i'm part of a national movement and and that comes from collaboration. And what's unique, or what's up the opportunity here, is that Jerry and I and the other our other colleagues, we want to uh, work with the others who have a message and see if we can collaboratively get that out as consistent message across the
0: country. Good, good point, Jerry. And and I think because the the coastal ecosystem learning center network needs to function like a network where you can energize the the various nodes with some of the same issues and do what we've already heard on this program, repeat the, the develop a, a common story and repeat it uh, often. Richard, would you like to add a final word to this list? Oh, I think it's a pretty good list, actually. Okay, I do, I do too. Let's see if we can bring up uh, on the screen what, what we recorded here. And uh, Jerry and I will re- refine this uh, before we take it to our colleagues. But continue to entertain the guests. Tie in to contemporary, timely issues. Engage guests in a conversation about these issues. And give guests a sense of wonder, and I guess I would add to that, and hope. And be careful to not depress guests Guests and, and present them with solutions. Um, but the, remind them of the power of collaboration. And there's something we need to demonstrate through this CELC network. I think that is a, a pretty good action plan, and um, one of the things that we want to work together to do is to engage these institutions and our visitors in exploring alternative pathways to the future. Because the decisions that we make, the technologies that we use and so on, they will determine what kind of a future that we have. Will and Ariel Durant, the historians, made the, the comment in their little book, The Lessons of History. The future never just happened, it was created. And unless the Earth is struck by a big asteroid, we human beings are going to be major determinants in creating that future. I want to thank my guests, Richard Harris, Paul Gaffney, and Jerry Ensler. And I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making this program possible. We hope you'll join us for the next Coastal Conversation on April the 23rd. The topic will be conservation and environmentalism in the 21st century. We're going to explore how environmentalism and conservation have changed through time and how we need to change again in the Anthropocene. My guest will be Dr. Peter Kariva, Chief Scientist of the Nature Conservancy. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations.